Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to Witch Please, a fortnightly podcast about the Harry Potter world. I'm Marcel Cosman. And I'm Hannah McGregor. And Marcel, guess what day it is? What day is it? I'm going to tell you in the sorting chat. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Hannah, what day is it? I mean, the day that this episode is coming out is September 20th. And that day is the day of my book release. That's so exciting. You must be so excited. I'm very excited. My book, for those who have missed it somehow, is called A Sentimental Education. It is available in... Every book place, all the book places. 100% of the book places. A lot of our international listeners have been asking how to get it. And I will tell you, it is available on Amazon. I won't hold it against you if that is how you acquire books. But also, you can buy it online directly from the publisher, which is Wilfrid Laurier University Press. And also, if you've got a local bookstore you really like, you can also just go in and ask them to order it because Wilfrid Laurier University Press does have international distribution. So you can get it in a variety of different ways. Also, mm-hmm. we're releasing an audiobook that I read and produced myself. <gasps> oh my goodness. Yeah. I bet it's flawless. It is not. It is flawed. But you know what? <laughs> You once told me, Marcel, that professionalism was a tool of the patriarchy, so I'm just going to embrace those flaws. Yes, that sounds right. It's imperfect, but that's fine. Hey, Hannah, I have an important question for you. Mm -hmm. Yes? Are you having like a fun in-person book launch, maybe? I am, in fact, having a fun in-person book launch. If you are listening to this episode when it comes out, the launch is in two days on September 22nd at Iron Dog Books. And if you are in or near Vancouver, you can come to it. But also, if you're in a place that isn't Vancouver and you want to just organize a book launch for me in that city, go ahead and do so and just let me know. Okay. <laughs> just, tell me, just tell me where to be and I'll come and launch my book at you. Great. You're going to have an Edmonton book launch. I will. Uh, I'll take care of it. Yeah, you and Jason, friend of the pod, Jason Purcell, just uh, just figure out figure out when and let me know. Okay, okay, that sounds great. I'll just ask them to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Even better. Yeah, they'll do it. They love it. Today's episode is about representations of motherhood in literature, so why don't we start by crawling back into the intellectual womb in revision? Hannah, that's disgusting. Yeah, I know. I'm sorry. I'm not sorry. You can tell by the tone of my voice. No. So, Marcel, I feel like the obvious place to start here is feminist literary criticism. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's obviously been a through line of the whole podcast, but we (laughs) talked about it explicitly way back in book one. 
Do you remember what we talked about? Uh, no, I don't. However, you wrote the summary for me. So fortunately, I can pretend that I did. So coach, you just fix this in post, okay? Just fix it in post. Okay, so we began by pointing out that there are different ways to enact feminist critique when looking at a book series like this. You can look at the representation of female characters, so like the tropes of the nagging mother, the weepy lovesick girl, the dead girl, etc. You can consider narrative questions like who drives the movement of the plot. And you can look at broader themes that have been taken up by feminist scholars, like recurring themes of ugliness or how characters are feminized to signify that they're untrustworthy. And, you know, we have done a lot of that. We talked about Lockhart as a queer-coded character, and we talked about the transphobic representation of Rita Skeeter. Yeah, absolutely. You also introduced us, Marcel, to the scholarship of Audre Lorde and Bell Hooks. So Lord, you pointed out, reminds us of the vital need for intersectional analysis. Quote, the absence of the consideration of race, sexuality, class, and age weakens any feminist discussion of the personal and the political, end quote. And Hooks insists that thinking seriously about pop culture is vital. She writes that we need to be, quote, able to be critically vigilant about what is being told to us and how we respond to what is being told, end quote. It's like the theme of the whole podcast. I also feel like a revision section for an episode on motherhood would not be quite complete without revisiting the concept of the mean mommy. Mm. In our episode on structuralism, we talked about the Triwizard task of stealing an egg from a dragon and how it positioned the mother as a figure our characters must escape in order to progress into adulthood. And we took that thinking further in our episode on monstrous women with Jess Zimmerman, where we looked at how tropes of monstrosity are used to vilify unruly women. So not only are the dragons mean mommies that our champions must defeat, but the actual mothers in the book are often represented as monstrous or at least animalistic in their single-minded protection of their children. I am so excited to dive more deeply into the topic of mothers now that we've arrived at truly the most mom-centric of all of these books. So let's go meet our guest. Let's do it. Okay, Hannah, to continue your horrifying metaphor, I guess we are now ready to be intellectually birthed from the womb in Transfiguration class. Our guest today is Erin Wunker, pronouns she, her. Erin is a settler scholar and an associate professor in the Department of English at Dalhousie University in Halifax, Nova Scotia, which is located in Mi'kma'ki, the ancestral and unceded territory of the Mi'kmaq. She is the author of Notes from a Feminist Killjoy, Essays on Everyday Life, and the forthcoming Rutledge Introduction to 20th and 21st Century Canadian Poetry. She has co-edited several books, including Avant Desire, a Nicole Brassard reader, and Refuse, Canlit in Ruins, which she co-edited with me. With you. Hi, I sure did. I'm so delighted. I'm delighted to be here with all of you. Thank you. So, Erin... 
when we talked about making an episode about motherhood, you were the first person who came to mind for me, not only because you are a parent, but also because you have written, I think, in really striking and beautiful ways about the experience of feminist motherhood. And I know that that's kind of where your thinking is at with your current sabbatical project as well. So I just want to take that thinking that you're doing and then just pull it out of your head, like the brain jizz that snake oh my cries God. out. <laughs> I am astonished. <laughs> <laughs> Not really. (laughs) I always felt like that might imagine like that that would feel like floss, like brain floss. You know what? Brain floss is so much less gross. I am now like haunted by the idea of pulling strands of anything out of my head and it's gross. Anyway, sorry. (sighs) I'm so excited to be here with all of you and... I have been thinking about mothers for a while and it seems to have coincided with my own experience of becoming one. And I think that that's a, like a starting point, but certainly not um, certainly not the place that I've been resting. So to start us off, I kind of wanted to differentiate in literature between representations of women and representations of mothers, because I think the two women and mothers often are conflated. Um, And I think it's really useful, vital even, to prize them apart as tools for deconstructing and examining the way that literary critics tend towards essentialisms. So can you give us an example of what you mean by unessentialism? Oh, yeah. And essentialism is distilling something or someone, especially down to very stock characteristics. So, for example, to distill a mother down to characteristics that you've already glossed, right? Like the mean mom or the monstrous failure of a mother or the hovering, all-encompassing mother hen, for example. Okay, so can you give us like a particular example of the way that mothers have been essentialized in literature? Absolutely. There's all sorts of ways about how we might get into thinking of the ways in which women are represented in literature over time and mothers especially. And this is one in which they're conflated, which I find super useful. I learned about it as an undergraduate student. And so perhaps that's why it sticks with me because I feel like that's the first time that I realized that women get essentialized into tropes, mothers get essentialized into tropes, and often the twain are difficult to divide. And this is the Victorian concept of the angel in the house. This figure is neatly fusing woman with mother and also usually wife gets kind of buttressed into that as well. The angel in the house is kind of an idealized trope of women whose highest ideals are self-sacrifice and self-effacement in the name of house, spouse, and children. There's a particularly Americanized version of this that gets called the cult of true womanhood, which I feel we should just pause and think about for a moment. Sorry, pardon 
pardon me. A hundred percent. It's called the, it's called the cult of domesticity or the cult of true womanhood. And it comes about Harriet Beecher Stowe was a proponent of this. She and um, her sister, in addition to writing sentimental novels, also wrote handbooks for how to organize your kitchen, right? And the cult of true womanhood or the cult of domesticity takes the angel in the house as an ideal. And interestingly, the angel in the house, that phrase is based on the title of a poem, a pretty bad poem by all accounts, written by a fellow idealizing his first wife who died. That is the ideal thing for a wife to do. <laughs> The, the angel in the house became a tool for repression. It got taken up as a social trope. People are interested in it, excited by it, and it becomes a way of organizing and limiting women's mobility within their own domestic spaces and in social spaces. Women in the middle classes and upper classes especially get held to this ideal and any deviation from this ideal of dedication and self-effacement to house, spouse, and children is met with really virulent punishment from spinsterhood to incarceration, usually in the form of a psychiatric hospital. Is this the same period with latchkeys? I remember learning when I was, I think, in high school or in undergrad about latchkey houses where husbands would leave and they would use a latchkey to lock their wives in the house. And because of what a latchkey is, wives were literally trapped inside the home. They could not open the door. I wish that I was able to say with a whole lot of certitude, yes, absolutely. But I don't. I don't know, actually. I can't lie for the internet. <laughs> That's <laughs> somebody, fine. Because somebody will fact check. But, you know, it's the, it's the middle 19th into the early 20th century. It is the moment in which, you know, in Louisiana when Kate Chopin is writing The Awakening, Kate Chopin was a, a really um, quite a famous American writer who was extremely popular in her own time period. She wrote a lot of local color texts that focused on, you know, women, family, um, Louisiana, Acadian culture, these sorts of things. She published her last novel, The Awakening, and it was focused on a woman who failed to be an angel in the house. And this resulted in her absolute ejection from American literary culture. She never wrote again, and then she died. Wow. I had no idea. I mean, I just, I like, I read The Awakening in first year university, and it was presented to me as this, like, proto-feminist text that is a woman writer beginning to articulate some resistance to the sort of familiar scripts of femininity and motherhood. But we didn't get that publishing history piece of it that was like, she wrote this book and people were like, oh, absolutely not. We will never speak of this. Oh, it's so interesting. Her publishing history is fascinating. She published a single page story called The Story of an Hour, which initially was published under the title The Dream of an Hour in Vogue magazine some years before. And the premise is similar, you know, a, a young-ish wife in her 30s or early 40s is told of the death, untimely death of her husband. She is perceived to be frail and fragile and kind of made of lace. And so she's sent upstairs. She opens the window. And in this act of opening the window, she has this kind of reverie of what her freedom will be because she lives in the South. And the only way 
to have access to her inheritance, to land that sort of thing for a woman is to be a widower. You can't, you can't be a single woman and have access to all of these things. You certainly can't be divorced. You can't be single. And so she starts suddenly to imagine her life beyond marriage and then comes to the top of the stairs. Turns out it's a big mistake. Her husband's alive. She sees him at the bottom of the stairs and drops dead. (laughs) And there's a total misunderstanding of what has happened. I really thought Arab was about to say and throws herself down the stairs. No, she she see, she sees that the husband is alive, realizes that her access to freedom and a life of freedom is gone. She's back in her totally fine, totally complacent, completely restrictive marriage, and she drops dead and she's diagnosed with heart failure, shock. Mm. But of course, what it really is, is the shock of the loss of her freedom that she's had for a short hour of thinking that her husband is dead. So this is the same kind of period of time in which in the United States, in the United Kingdom, some women writers are starting to explore what it might mean to, as Virginia Woolf says, kill the angel in the household. But these tropes of mothers and women usually fused into the same character, they abide. And if you do not fit the cult of true womanhood or the angel in the house, you end up looking like the binary opposite of the angelic mother, which is the monstrous mother, right? The demonic mother, the mean mommy, as you called it. Okay, so Erin, it sounds like the figure of the mother in literature is very often a conservative or restrictive one. That can't always be the case, though, right? Are there examples of subversive mothers? I think there's so many examples of subversive mothers. And my, I mean, that's such a good question, Marcel. Oh, thank you. And my, my answer... <laughs> My answer is not going to be exhaustive, right? I think it it's going to outline maybe my own reading practices and my own training as a student. But I think you're exactly right. You know, you asked is is the is the mother the figure of the mother seems to so often be framed as either conservative or restrictive. Is there any other way? And I think the answer is yes. I think it's interesting, to me at least, that to be both a good mother and a good woman with all of the oscillations within that container of woman that are possible, that these can also show up as tools for subversive modes of making comfort and safety. And I'm thinking now kind of beyond the confines of just literary scholarship to include Angela Garbel's most recent book, which is entitled Essential Labor. And she's thinking about how motherhood is an essential mode of, uh, essential component of life function and, and world making especially in the long durée of the pandemic that we're all experiencing. And in her view, in Angela Garbel's view, um, mothering isn't a noun, it's a verb, right? She talks not about mothers, but of the act of mothering. And I also think about how Susan Freeman talks about radical domesticity. Freeman is a literary scholar. And in the introduction of her book, she talks about literature tending to frame domesticity and its trappings, which I would think of as usually like the trope of the mother to include children, 
namely um, and husbands also, as unequivocally oppressive. And she points to a couple of examples that I mentioned, like The Awakening or Madame Bovary as famous examples of women who try to make space for themselves as wives and mothers who can't find their way out and really, you know, come to extremely final endings. (laughs) But... That's the one. That's the one <laughs> form of freedom. The very the finality that is your own finality of your choosing. But and I really like this in the context of intersectional readings of texts like Harry Potter. Freeman suggests that some literary representations of domesticity leverage safety and pleasure, especially when the character making domestic space falls outside the parameters of middle class, white, cis, and woman. Mm. So one example that she offers is Stone Butch Blues. Uh But there are many, many texts that center queer protagonists and characters who derive pleasure and long, detailed descriptions of making home and domestic place comfortable that aren't propulsive to the plot. They're simply there for pleasure, Mm -hmm. right? And so I do think that taking these concepts of mothering as a verb and radical domesticity when it's outside of the confines of the quote-unquote repressive traditional mother and the ways in which that has oppressed but also can be an oppressive uh, signifier, I think that gets really exciting. Yeah. And that also helps us sort of um, start to pull apart that essentialism that is mother and woman are the same, both in the sense that it is possible for people to be mothers without being women and that it is possible for people to be women without being mothers, and that those things are just, neither of those are simple categories, and neither of those are mutually constitutive, nor... But that immediately makes me think, too, of, like, drag mothers. Like, sort of within drag culture, these drag houses that are headed up by queens who are referred to as drag mothers, and then there's all, like, their drag children. And And it's, you know, these ways of thinking about the house and about sort of maternal care in a way that is totally divorced from heterosexuality, reproduction, the furthering of the white nation state. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, where the traditional and canonical representations of women as tropes and mothers as tropes, you know, the the mean mommy, the femme fatale, the tragic self-sacrificing angel in the house, the plucky spinster tomboy, you know, all of the ways that Gia Tolentino has written about representations of pure heroines, for mm. example, these get these get flattened. But I find I'm most interested in literary text or cultural text, Hannah, as you say, that broaden out this container of mother or mothering into something that is malleable, world-making, that extends tendrils out. And, you know, those tendrils are generous and generative, and they don't eschew all of the difficulty and absolute repressiveness that the structures imply, you know, I think in terms of literature, of engagements of mothering 
with characters who are working to adapt and to care in extreme contexts. Mm-hmm. I think of the main character of Toni Morrison's Setha and Beloved, for example, who is a deeply, deeply caring mother. Mm. Or Maya Angelou's representation of herself in I Know What a Cage Bird Sings when she encounters the fact that she's going to be a mother and it feels impossible, but then becomes possible because her mother gives mothering to her. Mm. So, you know, I I love what you've said about the ways in which these repressive categories can be nuanced into, into incredibly generous and exciting places to be as well. I'm wondering if there's an overlap in the repressive and constrictive representations of motherhood and the sort of history of, like, white feminism and white white women's writing versus black women's writing and women of color's writing because of I'm just thinking of the examples that you're giving that like mm. like I'm wondering if maybe it makes sense that there's a, a a stronger or more radical tradition of representations of motherhood in black women's writing because of the history of black women needing to work outside the home, right? And the way that, like, when you have conversations about reproductive justice, that, like, you know, white feminism tends to fixate on abortion access, which Mm -hmm. is obviously vital and important, but leaves out the part of reproductive justice that is about being allowed to have children, being allowed to keep your children. Mm. That history of Black motherhood also has to be considered through the history of slavery and the way that mothers were separated from their children. So like, right. Yeah. We get more radical representations of motherhood emerging from communities where motherhood wasn't like taken for granted. So like reproduction may have been demanded, but motherhood not. Motherhood in in a lot of cases actively prevented. Yeah. I think that that's such a vital set of observations. The two pieces, the two terms that I used earlier on, the the angel in the house and the cult of true womanhood, those are coming absolutely out of white supremacy culture, right? Absolutely. That is, you know, that is the framing device. That is the structuring device that becomes the bell jar against which white feminists continue to kind of in complicated and sometimes nuanced, but often not always ways, rattle against. And I don't think that it is a coincidence by any means that the examples that I find myself turning to, it's worth mentioning too that my, you know, my my earliest iterations of literary training as an undergraduate student happened in the American South with African-American literary professors. But the the places where I find nuanced and radical and complex versions of motherhood that chime with me, um, but really, you know, work against or, or work to subvert or work to be in conversation with that kind of prevailing narrative are coming from African-American writers that are coming from Black writers that are coming from Indigenous writers. So I think you're absolutely right that, you know, when you get out of the circle of the same and that echo chamber of your own oppression and you start uh, thinking about more than just yourself, if you are a white feminist writer, things become extremely interesting. And that's where intersectionality becomes a really exciting and sort of future-oriented maybe way of thinking about the category of mother and mothering. So we've been looking at 
the way that like representations of women and representations of mothers fall into these these handful of tropes. But I think it's probably worth also thinking about where those who fall outside the trope of the mother, those who not just sort of subversive examples of mothering, but also like, Marcel, you were pointing this out off mic, like, what about the women who aren't mothers? Um, or what about, what about the motherless? Like, what do we do with the absence of mothers? How does that also become important? Because I feel like those are, those are two big categories in these books as well. Yeah, I found myself thinking about that as well. This, this differentiation between the angel in the house or the monstrous mother in Harry Potter, for example. One might, <laughs> for example. As a random example. <laughs> As a random example. How might the, you know, how does the absence of the mother function? And there are so many characters in this series that have absent mothers. You know, Harry's the obvious one, but there are so many other ones. And it feels to me like these characters get marked as outsiders or Mm -hmm. in some ways weird at the very least. You know, I'm thinking of Neville or Luna Lovegood. But maybe even, you know, motherlessness becomes a kind of impediment or a task to get through. Mm. And if you're able to get through motherlessness, if you're able to overcome it in some sort of way, then you become a perhaps a fully rounded character. Um, I don't know if this holds up elsewhere, but it, it's, it resonated a little bit for me when I was thinking about it in terms of the series. Yeah, I love that. And I feel like it's a really great segue into owls and we can dive into the specificity of the mothers and the mother and the non-mothers and the motherless children in this series. What do you say? Let's do it. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for, but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. All right, Marcel, I'm done making jokes about wombs, which, as you have pointed out to me, is a social construct that cannot be collapsed or equated with the uterus. Mm. And Mm -hmm. so in the spirit of moving beyond this line of, to me, quite humorous discourse. This lining. This lining. Shedding this lining of discourse. It's time to shed this lining and instead sit on our eggs in owls? Incredible. Incredible. Okay. I think maybe we should start off with the sort of low-hanging fruit in this series by talking about the mothers. Because we've got a lot of mothers. In a lot of ways, they are quite tropey. They're quite essentialized as good mothers or bad mothers. Um, And I think it's worth talking about what makes them good mothers or bad mothers, according to the text, not according to us. Do you want to start off with Petunia Dursley? 
Sure, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> what do you think? Good mother? Good mother. <laughs> Medium mother, bad mother. That's the, that's the scale. I mean, I think that I think that as you're saying, Petunia is low hanging fruit because she is probably, to my mind, one of the most two dimensional tropish mother characters. Mm-hmm. She's shrill. She is overbearing. She is fragile and ready to swoon over her son who is dreadful you know she she's completely doting on her son she's completely the opposite with harry her her dead sister's orphaned child and she becomes a foil in that most classic literary sense of a you know a foil being a jewel that has metal added onto the back so it shines and makes the the character that it's presented against shine brighter. That's what a foil is, right? Is that they're made? I just learned so she's a foil something. For Lily. I absolutely also just learned that I had no idea that's why it was called a foil. I am one hundred percent going to use this in my classes. I'm going to pretend that I thought of it, Erin. No, I'm not. Well, I mean, you didn't you didn't even have to think of it. You can do it better and you can say, you know, this is citable research <laughs> is that the way that a foil functions in literature, it references taking a jewel and making it shine brighter by adding metal to the back wow. of it. And that's what a foil character does. Wow. And to me, Petunia is is that very much, right? She makes the absence of Lily and Lily's self-sacrifice all the brighter. And it's interesting to see that what makes her a bad mother is not only that she's neglectful, because she is neglectful, right? She is the bad mother to Harry. She's downright it, abusive in at, in a couple of the books, right? Oh, yeah. Re- rereading these books, it's so much worse than it is in the movies. It's so grim. It's really horrifying. And in keeping with a certain sort of Victorian tradition of children's literature, where, like, the orphan must overcome the neglectful mother as part of the journey towards self-determination. But it's interesting that part of what makes her terrible is that she is also an overly attentive mother, that she actually Mm -hmm. is mothering too hard. It suggests this idea of, like, motherhood as being something that, um, I guess, can be done wrong in a lot of ways, but that is, you know... can be, it's not just more is better, I guess. She's a caricature. You know, she, she is what, she's a, she's a cautionary tale of what happens when mothers take up space, right? Because you can't forget Petunia Dursley, even if she's a terrible mother to her son and an abusive acting mother to her, to her nephew, she is over-present, right? You remember too much about her, which eradicates her capacity for being a good mother. Oh, that gave me goosebumps. <laughs> so sinister. I can't remember, Hannah, if you made this point in the original run of the series or in the reboot, but you talked about... It was when we were talking about the representation of Dudley as fat and as that being kind of evidence, like further evidence of how bad a mother Petunia is and how we put that in, like if we juxtapose that with Molly Weasley parenting her children. And I, and I, what is sticking out to me is the fact that in whatever book it was that we were looking at, the kids eat 
six bacon sandwiches each and that that is framed positively, whereas whatever it is that Petunia is doing is is just fundamentally bad. Yeah. To go back to the kinds of like sentimental tropes of motherhood that Aaron was alluding to in the last segment, a lot of that sort of like the ideal version of, say, you know, the marmy figure in Little Women is that she is a figure of moderation and self-control who extends that self-control because she has total control over the self, she can extend it into the rest of the household. And so it's sort of, you know, that that ability to constantly manage and moderate all her own physical impulses and thus also to teach moderation to her children, like that this is a really vital part of her role. And that's the tricky thing about sentimental literature is that those characters are often quite boring to read about. And so we like we like reading about the girls before they are well moderated while still knowing that that should be what they're what they're aiming for. That like actually what we want is for Anne of Green Gables to grow up to be a very boring mother. Mm-hmm. But that we don't actually want to read about her as a very boring mother. We want to read about her as somebody who has not yet become managed because that's narratively interesting. Right. Well, I find myself thinking, in addition to what you're saying, Hannah, about specifically the the, the sentimentalist tropes, with Molly Weasley, and I, I think you've talked about this at, at different times, but I just want to bring it back into the conversation with the six bacon sandwiches each, Molly Weasley vis-a-vis Petunia or Lily or many of the other mothers that maybe we'll talk about in this section is a working class mom, a mom who has constantly to struggle to make ends meet, is constantly buying things secondhand. There's always references to the shabbiness of the clothing, these sorts of things. And the excellence of her cooking is one place where there always seems to be enough. Mm-hmm. And so her her capacity to be able to feed not just her own children, but Harry and Hermione as well, becomes maybe a place where um, she gets out of these excessiveness or these moderation restrictions or requirements because we're talking about a different class status. Yeah, I mean, we've we've had conversations about the Weasleys and their class status and whether they're working class or, or impoverished gentry. But the impoverishment is is key. And it's interesting, Marcel, to come, you know, your point about like the too much Dudley is eating too much bacon, whereas we're in the whereas in the Weasley household, it's about there being all always enough nourishment, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. always enough love, always enough of what you really need to Mm -hmm. go around. Yeah. I feel like in this context, even the fact that all the kids have secondhand items and the fact that we're constantly reminded of the secondhand items is a way of reminding us that Molly makes it happen. Molly is able to mother them so much that they never go without, even if they have to have secondhand things. It's never like, yeah, it, it's, it's, um, like, it's I've never, never heard failure. Yeah, exactly. It's like, it's, it's hard. Like, Ron is resentful 
at times, for sure, but it's always symbolic of Molly's ability to provide. Yeah. And where I find Molly particularly interesting is where I think she kind of aligns a little bit with Petunia, which is the way that the mother doesn't want to let go of her child being Mm. a child. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we see that in Petunia that she's sort of deeply infantilizing of Dudley. Diddykins. Diddykins, exactly. (laughs) But for Molly, it's this sort of, this attempt to uh, shelter her children, to like keep them in childhood, often in quite a literal way, right? Like you have not reached the age of maturity in the wizarding world Mm -hmm. yet. You are still a child. I'm going to use the fact that you are a child as a way to protect you. You know, that is simultaneously something that that we can clearly see as Molly taking care while also seeing that it is something that our protagonists have to reject. Mm -hmm. That they actually, as part of their own maturity, they have to, like, throw off the, the care of the mother in order to mature. And... In Petunia's case, she's over-mothering and over-sheltering Dudley, but he's not at any risk. Whereas Molly's over-mothering and over-sheltering is entirely justified because they're in the middle of a war. (laughs) You know, so it's like, yes, they have to throw it off. Sending them to a to a school where they're just being deployed as child soldiers. And she's like, literally their kids, could anybody? So like the characters, like the children have to throw off her sheltering, but at no point is she ever wrong to be doing it. Yeah, but that does that does continue to sort of make the mother this like this static figure, right? Like that the mother just is the mother and that the child's job is to like move past the mother and leave her behind, but she is still just there. And and part of that, you know, part of that sense of like, oh, all she is is the mother is that that's just all we get to see of her. Hmm. Hmm. Which is like, because we only see her through Harry's perspective, and that's all. That's all Harry sees of anybody. Let's then let's take this opportunity to talk about Narcissa then, because we do get glimpses of Narcissa from our semi mm. omnivorous, our semi omnivorous narrator. Yep. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Our obligate carnivore narrator. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, we get we get two of those weird chapters at the beginning of this book that are the like not in Harry's perspective. They're always so strange how they position you, the watcher, as like standing like they don't even tell you who the characters are. They're just like a man a a man appears and is walking <laughs> down the street. And you're like, I don't anyway. But this is not an episode about narrative structure. Not yet. But we do. We see Narcissa and Bellatrix in that in that opening chapter where Narcissa makes Snape um, make the unbreakable vow to protect Draco, mm-hmm. which is sort of like anticipating the way that she will, to some degree, redeem herself mm-hmm. as a character at the end of this book. Because she's the one who lies to Voldemort and tells him that Harry is dead because Harry 
confirms that that Draco is still alive and still in Hogwarts. Aaron, what do you think about Narcissa? Good mother? Medium mother? <laughs> bad mother? Static mother, again. You know, even with this crescendo of a plot propulsion that she makes at the end of this particular book, which allows for all sorts of important um, and valiant things to occur, to my mind, she's still a pretty statically tropaic mother. She's she's mean, she's evil, She's her evilness is tempered by her capacity to love her child, which has never changed through any of the books in the series. She's always seen as doting. Draco receives sweets and care packages from home. And presumably these are packaged by his mother, not his father. And and so to my mind, it's the other side of the same coin of, of the angel in the house is that Narcissa is, is holding her house down and her house is not her spouse, it's her child. Mm. Yeah. And then we've got the most static of all the mothers, right? Because who could be a more perfect mother than one who died in sacrifice for her child Mm -hmm. at like the ripe old age of 21 and her she is figured almost exclusively throughout this series as a figure of sacrifice Mm -hmm. like that's what lily is lily is the person who threw herself in the way of a killing curse for her child and thus created an unbreakable magical power. One of the things, Marcel, I know we both love about the sixth movie mm-hmm. is that story about Francis mm-hmm. the fish. Yeah, Francis because, the fish. Because it feels like this one little bit that we get of actually seeing Lily as a person mm-hmm. who was like maybe an actual person. Mm-hmm. But other than that, she exists almost exclusively as this figure of sacrifice Mm -hmm. and like secondarily in this book, the figure of Snape's desire. Right. Which is kind of indivisible from her being a figure of sacrifice because she has to be a tragic and dead figure for his love of her to turn into the sort of self-sacrifice that he does in this book. Oh, totally. And also like the way in which she is figured as his object of desire is inextricable from her capacity to like provide for him the kind of life similar to Harry, right? Like, because she's dead, she could have been the mother for Harry that he deserved. She could have been for Snape, the wife and potential mother of his children that would like turn him from this sallow, hateful man into, I don't know, like a, like a dad. You know. Huge if true. I mean, a mother does, like in the logic of this book, but I think in the logic of a lot of tropes, like mothers create fathers, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I, I think, you know, worth noting that the childless women in this book are almost to a one vilified. Mm-hmm. Childless women are like Dolores Umbridge, who is literally a child torturer, or they are, you know... We get the the closest we get to like a benign childless woman 
is maybe Mrs. Fig, right? Who's like the spinster figure with gross cake and too many cats and her home smells weird, but like at least she's nice to him. Or like McGonagall, who's like, you know, gets to be kind of um, like a secondary mother because she's still caring for children. And so she's still like kind of doing her job. But yeah, mostly they're like umbrages or skeeters, you know, <laughs> our childless women are mostly very suspicious. I think we can even think about Trelawney, right? Who we have no textual evidence to tell us whether she has had children or has, I don't know. But like, so there's no evidence for this. But she is so clearly unfit to care for children that it's laughable. <laughs> I mean, childless women in this series are vilified. And if they're not vilified, then they are also reduced to their functional status as teacher mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. coach mm -hmm. or I'm thinking of Madame Hooch, right? Or, mm -hmm. you know, they are, they are reduced to their function in the text. They are not nuanced and, and complex characters. Hagrid, on the other hand, does seem to be an example to me of a character who is interestingly motherless. You know, we get lots of references to the to the departure and absence and loss of his mother. And yet this character has the capacity and indeed seems to dedicate his life to mothering creatures, the more monstrous, mm -hmm. the more palatable. Mm -hmm. Possibly Harry included, you know, <laughs> uh, <laughs> like the more mm -hmm. difficult, the better. And because he's the one who sweeps up Harry as a baby, right? And he becomes, he becomes the mother of, of this monstrously unruly child that survives. And then he goes on to all manner of beasts. And this becomes a way I think of not just navigating his own laws, but building other networks of care that are really interesting in the in the books. Oh mm -hmm. my god, that mm -hmm. that idea of Harry as being part of the non-traditional family of monstrous creatures that Hagrid brings under his wing is so beautiful to me that he like arrives at Hogwarts and everybody is like what is this? Like, what is this kid? He's this chosen one. He's cursed. He's scarred. He's he's something unusual, something we don't know what to do with. And Hagrid is just like, oh, something unusual that's freaking other people out? Get in. Get in Bring here. it. <laughs> I'll make you some tea. Think, yeah, tea and terrible cooking. But, you know, it's still, still. Um, and I think, too, the way that he, the way that he provides care for Hermione and Ron He's also extending that care to them the way that we see Mrs. Weasley extending care to Harry, right? So it's like, oh, the friends of my child are here. And when they have fights, he's there to help them, like, reconcile and solve their problems. Yeah, and it seems to me that each time Hermione, I'm wondering if this is true all the way through. I'm going to try it even if it isn't. It seems to me that each time Hermione is 
almost induced into a place of coercive mothering where she has to be the one taking care. Hagrid actually kind of ballasts everything and sits Ron and Harry down and says, smarten up. You know, you're asking too much of Hermione. She's taken too much on these sorts of things. And so he refuses to let her be reduced to this category of little mother Mm. by her friends, which is kind of interesting. You know what, Erin, even if it's not all the way through, the fact that he does that even sometimes, we we can sort of think about that as helping Hermione to realize that it is also not her job, right? Because then when they're mm. when they're camping, my favorite my favorite part of the books, Hermione eventually like loses her shit about the fact that she is mothering. And so instead of just assuming that it's her job, she stands up for herself and yells at Ron about his bad behavior and his ungrateful shitty contributions to this this camping trip that she packed for. I am glad I am glad that she at least has her moment of being like, why is everyone assuming I'm the one to cook? Though that doesn't seem to actually resolve much. <laughs> <laughs> but it is, I think, a really interesting addition to this conversation about mothering as a verb is the way that we watch these three children struggle to feed themselves mm-hmm. when they are on their own. And the way that, in retrospect, that casts a different kind of light on the labor of feeding children. And the mm-hmm. insistence on the fact that you can't generate food out of nothing. Like, it has to come from somewhere. And so it's not easy. Uh, it's repeated daily labor when they are deprived of it, they start to fall apart right away. And it becomes another way to say, like, yeah, okay, maybe a lot of the representations of mothers in this series are one-dimensional, but we are given an opportunity to recognize mothering, this sort of domestic labor of world-making, as, like, absolutely vital. Hello, house elves. Totally. <laughs> Yes, I was thinking that. I was thinking, like, how do we add house elves into this conversation as part of sort of a larger understanding of the value of, like, keeping the home? Because what happens with Creature in this book where they, like, start being nice to Creature and then he starts making them nice dinners and they're like, we did it. Sit so uneasily with me. I feel really uncomfortable about that turn. And the way that in, like, that final moment, you know, when Harry's like, like right at the end after everything's done and Harry's just like, I wonder if Creature would make me a sandwich. And it's just like, cool, you've learned a lot. <laughs> I forgot about that and I hate it. It's interesting, you know, it's it again is this reminder that like in this moment, what he wants is to be enveloped in a network of care. You know, he doesn't want to be held up as this hero and praised and celebrated he wants to be cared for because he's tired and there is you know throughout again here comes the here comes the classic hannah turn throughout a book series that is relatively conservative on the notion of mothering there is this through line of like care like taking care is so vital nothing else can happen without it nothing else you know all of these sort of big faded fights between good and evil 
are not possible unless somebody's making sure that you've got some bread and cheese to eat. I feel like the conversation that we are having that introduced house elves just now loops back to what we were saying earlier about the ways in which literature, especially by Black writers, Black women writers, nuances our understandings of the category of mother because of the complexity of racialization and the ways in which racialized characters and racialized people and racialized individuals have to navigate um, multiply complex oppressions and systems. Yeah, so we can't talk about the house elves offering care without understanding the house elves as being so frequently coded as as enslaved and as racialized. And similarly, you know, this conversation about Hagrid has to go hand in hand with conversations we've had in the past about how Hagrid being half giant is another way that the text sort of implies his racialization, that it certainly casts him as other in a way that that again opens up space for those more nuanced and complex relations to mothering that are not just another iteration of of the angel in the house. Mhm. Okay, so if we take a step back now from the specificities of these characters and go back to asking like how is motherhood functioning in this text? Aaron, can you sort of, you know, bring us back to this larger like what is the function of these mothers? Like what are they what are they doing? In the cult of true womanhood or the angel in the house, the aims of a mother are to ensure the survival and good stationing of her children and to ensure the survival and good reputation of her lineage. Because of course, just to reiterate, this is a social construct and a cultural construct that is coming out of white middle-class womanhood. And so the insurance of the continuation of the line is really important. And that line has to be bound up in reputation and respectability. And so everything from Jane Austen to Kate Chopin, you see mothers mm-hmm. striving to ensure that their children mm-hmm. get a good match, that their children are well-behaved, that their children become good adults, but perhaps one of the differentiations that we see between um, these tropes and some of the characters that we've talked about in the books is that there's less attention paid to the interior life of the child, and there's far more attention and urgency placed on the exterior comportment that aligns with social norms and expectations. Wow, like Bill coming home and Molly Weasley immediately wanting to give him a haircut (laughs) and literally sitting Charlie Weasley down and forcibly giving him a haircut when he comes home for his brother's wedding. More important, more important to have a haircut. My goodness. I mean, I know there's a war going on. Yeah, which which brings us back, Aaron, to, you know, that idea of... The point is continuity. That's what we get at the end of the series. Like the the epilogue tells us this has succeeded. The continuity has happened. All of our girl characters have become mothers. 
and they have had their own children and, you know, all is well. And what all is well means is that, you know, the mothers succeeded because they they made that continuity happen. Thank you, witches, for joining us for another episode of Witch Please. If you want to hang out with us some more, we're on Twitter and Instagram at ohwitchplease. And if you want to hang out with us even more, you should go to patreon.com slash ohwitchplease, where you can get all kinds of amazing perks like exclusive merch, movie watch-alongs, blooper reels, and literally so much. I can't even describe it all. Just hours of content. Hours. Erin... If the people want more of you, where do they find you? In the library. Ha! I'm not on social media very much, but you can find me on the internet co-organizing the Dalhousie Feminist Seminar Series. We're at dal underscore fem underscore sem on Instagram. Or you can find a piece that I just wrote about mothering in Jen Sukfong Lee and Stacey May Fowles' most recent edited collection, which is called Good Mom on Paper, Writers on Creativity and Motherhood. And that's out with Book Hug. Which Please is produced in partnership with Wilfrid Laurier University Press and distributed by ACAST. You can find the rest of our episodes at awitchplease.ca. Special thanks, as always, to our team player of a producer, Hannah Rehack, a.k.a. Coach, and to our Witch Please apprentice, Zoe Mix. Thank you both. <laughs> and now the moment you're always waiting for. At the end of every episode, we shout out everyone who left us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. So you've got to review us if you want to hear me say... Mama, ooh, <laughs> I don't want to die. <laughs> I sometimes wish I'd never been born at all. <clears throat> Thank you this week to Sarah Moeller Peterson. Please do Earth Sea next underscore owl owl underscore 69. Still don't know what Earth Sea is. Hannah can tell me every single but time. Coach, do put the owl sound effects in there, please. Hoot, hoot. Amelia Beth B, A Far Field, and Sabrina Daughter. Sabrina Daughter? Whoa. Sabrina Daughter. Sabrina Daughter? We'll be back next episode to continue our discussion of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. But until then... Later, witches.